But John 4, 7 and through 14. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, and therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than the Father. Jacob, are you who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I want to thank Beth Singleton again for starting us off on this series, and we'll spend uh, my attention at least as the rest of... uh, the summer on the theme of worship, and once again, we probably won't get to the core of it with this passage even again this Sunday. So two introductions to where we'll go, at least with this passage, uh, next week. You might remember that last Sunday we looked just at, primarily at that part of Jesus' decision in his journey from Judea to Galilee to must-needs-go-through-Samaria, an unusual course for a Jew at that time. It would be commonplace to cross over the Jordan and travel up Perea, sort of neutral land, and back into Galilee or Judea, depending on which direction you were going. But Jesus said he had to go through Samaria. And we draw the, drew the implication from that, which I think is the right one, that here we see Jesus' inauguration to missions. He knew that his message was from the Jews to the world, to every tongue and tribe and nation, he must needs go through Samaria to explode every barrier and every boundary with the love and the work and the salvation that he came to show and to share and to enact and to enable. And we see it acted out with this woman of Samaria. I made the application that I am proud and have been privileged uh, to serve this church, which in so many ways does not reflect the kind of ghettoized mentality that many churches in America and in other places represent. We have made decisions not to target one group, but all groups. Uh, I uh, am a supporter of, I have been blessed by, I've been formed by, parachurch ministries. I support them, I love them, but I also know their purpose. They come alongside the church. They have the luxury, if you will, of saying, we'll do this one thing. We'll do one thing. And often they do it very well, but their strength, as is often the case, is also their weakness. 
Because one thing is not what the kingdom of God is about. One thing is not what the church is about. The church provides a ministry to the family from cradle to grave to all people, all nations, all ages, all groups. Uh, I do not know another fellowship, particularly in a suburban area of 250, which represents more ages or races or, frankly, different people. (laughs) Some of us weird. They gather here together. I'm proud of that. That was the first movement. Let's move on to the second today. Jesus arrives in Samaria. He's hot. He is tired. He's worn out. The disciples go into town to the Safeway to get some food to take care of things. And I think I did observe last week that I, it's hard to overlook in Jesus, John's telling of the gospel story that we are to contrast the Samaritan woman and all the things he could have put together and placed together with the conversion or almost conversion, I think conversion of the man in the third chapter just before. Here's Nicodemus, a man of influence and power and prominence and station. And here is a woman in the fourth chapter who most of us would have overlooked, who was hated by Jews, who was a woman who had no name, no reputation, no influence, who didn't count. The more and more I read of Jesus in the Gospels, I am overwhelmed by his absolute, uncompromising love for people. Hot, tired, thirsty. He uses that as tools and as occasion to reach out towards this Samaritan woman to find what God wants. Not just worship, but the text says, we'll say later, true worshipers. He's looking in this Samaritan woman for a true worshiper of him. What we have is a series of reaching out and responses. He first reaches out with kindness. One of the ways, this doesn't have to be a strategy, it's just true. One of the ways that we can break down barriers with cold and different strangers is to ask for some help. And it's an easy thing to do because we need it. I think everybody that Stephanie and I know, well, maybe not Stephanie, she's friendlier than I am, but everybody that I know on my block, I've asked for help. Brett, the fireman across the street, I got to know him first because I brought in, probably shouldn't have, what what earthly good is a 55-inch TV screen? But I couldn't get it in the house alone, and I went over to Brett's door, and I knocked on it. Could you give me some help? And, of course, he could. He saw the inside of our house, and we've become, if not uh, friends, acquaintances uh, ever since. Uh, down the road from us is a lady with a uh, Toyota Venza. Stephanie has admired that for four years. Four years ago, she went, could we look at your Venza? And uh, a relationship was struck up. Stephanie, as of about a week now, owns a Venza. But it took her four years of it. But that relationship started out of a request for kindness. Jesus says, give me a drink. He initiated the contact. He reaches out. And she responds defensively. Literally, it reads something like this. What do you, a Jew, have to do with me? A Samaritan. Samaritans don't. Have truck with Jews. What's going on here? We two don't mix. So next Jesus appeals to her curiosity. He says, woman, if you knew the gift 
And if you knew the giver, you wouldn't be so hesitant. You would reach out. And the one response to this was sarcasm. Well, I don't know who you are, but I know that this will was given by our father, Jacob. Are you better than he? Are you greater than he? Who do you think you are? Next, Jesus comes back to uh, an appeal to her desire. He's appealed to her kindness. He's appealed to her curiosity. Now he appeals to her desire. He says, here's what I have to offer you. I have living water to offer you. Water which if you take it, you will never thirst again. You will have an everlasting, ever-loving, eternal slaking of your thirst. The point I'm going to make, really the one point I'm going to make uh, in this communion meditation, I want to make later, but it really comes up here. Uh, I don't know if she's dense, but she probably just, she, she takes this as a, as on the physical level rather than the spiritual. Uh, we're kind of tone deaf. As contemporary people, maybe we always have been, maybe that's a human condition to spiritual insight. She responds on the physical level. I'd like some of that water. I, I need it. I, I'd like the kind of water that comes that I don't have to drink again. She doesn't get it on the level of the offer that Jesus is being offering her. So Jesus gets personal with her. And he says, go get uh, your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And uh, again, I'm so struck by how absolute, I'm, I'm struck by Jesus' response. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't come down on her. He doesn't nail her. He says, you've said right. What he does first is commend her. You have spoken truly. I'm proud of you. Phineas, I know you've had six serial men in your life, haven't you? And he opens her up. He exposes her. We all stand exposed before the living God. Nothing hidden. Nothing tucked away. Later on, in a text we aren't going to read it, when she goes into the town, and uh, she summarizes this whole conversation. She says, I met a man who told me everything about my entire life. Of course, he didn't. He told her this one thing. And when she looked back on her entire life, what she saw was sleaze. So she said, here's somebody that must represent the Messiah. Here's somebody that brings all that together. What she responds with is distraction. Well, I perceive you're a prophet. And speaking of that, we worship at Mount Gerizim and the Jews worship at Jerusalem. Now, which do you think is right? I wonder if that kind of response to something important has ever happened to you. I was speaking at a church in Las Vegas and flying back from it. And I was standing on the plane next to a Muslim doctor. And when he found out what I did for a living and what I'd done in Las Vegas, he said, what is a man of God doing traveling to the city of sin? And I'm usually, I confess before, I'm usually better about 10 seconds later. This is one of the very few times I was kind of pleased in the moment. I looked back at him and I said, well, 
I don't look at it that way. I consider that I uh, have my own sin that I carry with me. Wherever I go, that's why I need more than a prophet. I need a savior. I thought that was a pretty good opening for the rest of the conversation that could come, and I just was silent for a while to see where he might take the conversation from there. When he spoke, he struck up and he said, you know, do you believe it's possible that God created everything out of nothing? <laughs> and so we we stayed in the Crotio ex nihilo in the Latin. Uh, I tried to keep coming, coming back to prophet and savior, and he wanted to stay with the creation of the world. He, he wanted to stay in distraction. When we are taken to uncomfortable places, we regularly change the subject. I think one of the first things we learn about worship from this encounter is that it deals with real life. It's not a mythical respite one hour a week from reality. Worship has to do with hunger and thirst and forgiveness and failure and transgressions and sins and adultery. There are lots of things that non-believers and Believers don't have in common, but I think this is the one of the things we do have in common. We don't like to talk about sin. We don't like to think about sin. <clears throat> but true conversion involves repentance. It means turning towards something, but it also means turning away from something, turning to something beautiful and drawing and attractive and handsome and turning away from something that's ugly and defiling and impure. There's a turning towards something, and I don't think real worship can happen in our fallen world, at least, without an awareness of sin. Uh, two, maybe three weeks ago, Beth shared with us that Isaiah 6 is one of the great templates of worship. It sends us through several important I think even necessary movements and starts with God arriving in his train, which means his presence and his glory, filling the temple that fills everything. And in light of that, Isaiah's awareness of his own unworthiness, his own sin, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. All of my adult life, I have had the privilege of sharing and contending and thinking about and arguing and talking about the faith in some wonderful settings. Many uh, in higher education at UC Berkeley, at UT Austin, at UC Santa Cruz, and if it is an institution dropping at Yale and at Princeton, uh, all of my adult life, and I can make some observations about these experiences. We live in a biblically and theologically illiterate generation. The best and the brightest of our culture don't understand the most rudimentary, the simplest things about Christianity or about the gospel. They don't have the slightest idea about what Christianity is. They don't know that there are two testaments in the Bible. I can try and explain the doctrine of the Trinity or the deity of Christ or the resurrection of the dead or the judgment of all things, and people don't get mad. They'll talk about evidences and um, other religions and the character of God and uh, rather enjoy it. 
There's only one thing they get mad about. There's only one thing they get angry about. And that's when we start talking about sin. Now, maybe there's a good reason for that. There is, I think it's a stereotype, but God forgive us if we give cause for this. There, there is a feeling that Christians are holding themselves up as holier than thou or better than other people, and they hate it. And God forgive us if we do that. I don't see how we can to be a Christian, the very starting point of being a Christian, to say, I've blown it, I need a Savior, I'm a sinner. One of the wonderful things in the Tim Keller training on apologetics that we did almost two years ago now is how winsomely he would regularly say, oh, I'm sure that you're a better person than I am. Of course, that's very likely the case. Because Christianity isn't primarily about how good we are, about how great God is. It is the one, as I've said many times from this pulpit, is the one faith of which I am aware that doesn't require us to make ourselves acceptable in order to earn God's favor. It is the faith in which God makes us acceptable by his own gift of himself. That's the gospel. That's grace. So to the extent to which people think that we are holding it over them, maybe they, they have a right, but I think it's deeper than that. One, one Christian brother I know says, this might be an overstatement, but maybe it isn't. He says... I, He thinks only Christians can sin because it's only Christians that know what they're doing and yet do it anyway. So Paul said the closer we get to Christ, the more aware we are of our sinfulness. To be a Christian is to confess at the outset that we are sinners. In our fallen world, I don't think it's possible to truly worship without a realistic understanding of sin. Last week we saw a decision from our Supreme Court hinging on the vote of one justice that has put us as a nation and as a church into a new moral landscape. I think we should be clear about what has happened, not overreact to it, not react inappropriately. It was... Not a decision, however, as I understand it, about people's rights to make decisions about their lives or about lifestyles or actions or choices. We as a church have been for decades, if not millennia, affirming of that, particularly as a Baptist people. What happened, though, was about the definition of something. The definition of marriage is about the attempt to declare something to be identical with something else that is not. Whatever you think of it, identical. And only two different things can be made to be treated as identical by force. In this case, the force of the state. Pastor John Piper has observed, my sense is that we do not realize what a calamity is happening around us. The new thing, new for America, new for history, is not... This act of brokenness has been here since we were all broken in the fall. What's new is not even the celebration and approval of it. This behavior has been exploited, reveled in, and celebrated in art for millennia. What's new 
is normalization and institutionalization. This is the new calamity. Russell Moore of our Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission has said the church will need in the years ahead to articulate what we believe about marriage. We cannot assume that people will agree with us or understand us. Our Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission has issued a balanced and helpful statement that I signed last week myself. There are copies of it at the back for any of you that would like to take it. It recognizes that we all approach issues of sin as sinners ourselves and as broken people who are in need of repentance and God's mercy and transformation in our own lives. Amen. Acknowledging that all people, whatever our particular struggles, are created in God's image and deserve dignity and respect, but it also states, and I think eloquently and necessarily, and I'm going to read just a sixteenth of it in part, We dissent from the court's ruling that redefines marriage. The state did not create the family and should not try to recreate the family in its own image. The Bible clearly teaches the enduring truth that marriage consists of one man and one woman. That truth is not negotiable. The Lord himself said that marriage is from the beginning. So no human institution has the authority to redefine marriage any more than a Human institution has the authority to redefine the gospel, which marriage mysteriously reflects, Ephesians 5. The Supreme Court's ruling to redefine marriage demonstrates mistaken judgment. By disregarding what history and countless civilizations have passed on to us, the church is defined by the gospel. And the gospel brings good news to all people, regardless of whether the culture considers the news good or not. We pledge faithfully to witness to the biblical teaching that marriage is the chief cornerstone of society designed to unite men and women and children. We promise to proclaim and live this truth at all costs with convictions that are communicated with kindness and love. Unwittingly, this woman has crept into worship by the back door. She uh, has come through an awareness of sin to a recognition of the Messiah. Ephesians 5.32 brings us to the importance that marriage reveals of our relationship with God himself and Christ. It is union. It is coming together. It is time with not just his gift, but with him. This table is the oldest picture of that. This table invites us around it. This morning we celebrate the mystery that marriage proclaims, that we are called to an ever-loving, everlasting union with the God who has created it. Let it be so. Living and holy God, we are thankful for your great gift of yourself. We are thankful for the parable that was given to this Samaritan woman and through her to us, water from which we will never spiritually thirst again because we have found our home, our haven, our heaven, our purpose, our reason for breathing. Father, may we take this bread and take this cup as a parable and as a sign 
of the person you are and the purpose to which you call us. In Jesus' name.